When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, Conference USA edition on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the group of five and the FCS. Uh, Joe Lonergan, Eric Henry here with you as always, ready to dive into the Conference USA slate uh, from week seven and get ready to preview week eight as well. Uh, I'm going to talk about what we saw from this week's action and, um, you know, let, let's let's devote some time this episode and make sure we we talk about where each team is at uh, the midway point in the year and uh you know eric henry i know you've been uh moving around a little bit you went to you just got back from fiu and saw that game against utsa which we'll dive into in a bit but you know how are things going in the sunshine state right now man it is a beautiful i mean it's you know what? it's actually not a beautiful day uh i could give you the cliche but it's, it's overcast but it's also that time of year around here where we start uh you know as we kind of get into quote unquote our uh joe is this winter as someone's a floridian didn't grow up with seasons what is this is this autumn <laughs> it's i mean it's technically autumn it's the middle of october okay cool um as a floridian only has two seasons uh hot and then less hot uh it's a time mm-hmm. of year where it starts to get a little bit overcast and like instead of it raining every day at four o'clock in the afternoon it typically rains in the morning so that's what we're facing here but all in all cannot uh cannot complain i'm glad you got a good laughter on the fact that listen it, it is one of the one of the like adult things about me that it is so abundantly clear as a floridian and that I, I could barely name all four seasons let alone you know tell you when they are because i grew up here so um in chicago when i lived there it just was summer and then freezing now granted you did have some nice time between like September, August, September, when the leaves change and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, these hypothetical leaves that I'm making up as I lived in the city. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but yeah, being here in, in Florida, it's just, it's just hot and not hot. So winter and summer, it's all I got. I mean, first of all, in the Midwest, it's your four seasons are winter, still winter, almost winter and construction. Correct. And, yes. Yeah. And I get that Florida doesn't really have seasons, but you you still know the seasons, right? Or is that just like something you missed? Joe, I am going to confess this to you right now as a 31-year-old man. Uh, I do not know the seasons outside of summer and winter. Like I, and, and clearly, as I just said to you on October 18th, I'm not even sure when winter really is. Okay. All right. We're going to have to unpack that uh, <laughs> on, a, on a future podcast that we release where we just – go through eric's childhood but uh joe, for now joe, we how, probably do you, how, do you, how do you feel about this as we you know do as we as we typically do which is produce this podcast and manage this uh website <laughs> this endeavor uh-huh. together on the air how do you feel about uh-huh. polls like I, I, when we drop these episodes how do you feel about just a poll to go along with each episode as to maybe either something zany or something conference usa football related that we've talked about 
Like, I mean, what's the the limit? Do you know what? What's this one going to be? Do you know what the seasons are? It, the, the, it can either, it can either be, do you know what the seasons are? Do you know when, not what, not what I know what the seasons are, when <laughs> the seasons are, or is it, is, is being a Floridian a reasonable excuse to not know when the seasons are? Like I, I may tweet that out today and get some feedback. <laughs> I'm just taken aback. I didn't know we had like an autumn denier. <laughs> it's I didn't know I was doing a podcast with an autumn denier. I'm I'm uh, thoroughly an autumn and fall denier, Joe. <laughs> uh, sure, we can do that poll and see what people think. I'm re- I'm really taken aback by this. I didn't expect this. At Beth, if you listen to this podcast in the morning, my time. Right. <laughs> I'm tagging Beth in this too. Oh, good lord. Okay, we'll see how many autumn deniers are in the crowd out there. <laughs> All right. Do you want to talk about football? We should dive into that at some point, right? Let's do it, sir. <laughs> okay. All right. Friday night game in Miami, UTSA beating FIU 30 to 10. Uh, UTSA actually got to play a lot of their backups in the second half here. Smart move by Jeff Trailer to get some of the younger names, some meaningful road snaps in this one. Uh, notably, Kavorian Barnes ran for 128 yards and two touchdowns for UTSA. Uh, personally, honestly, I like the approach FIU took with this game. They were aggressive. Uh, you saw them kind of go for it on fourth down multiple times here. Didn't always pan out, but, um, you know, they played like they thought they belonged in this game, despite the obvious difference in experience and depth, which as they should, the execution just wasn't quite there. But, you know, obviously injuries played a small part in that as well. But Eric, you, you know, I, I know you saw I was talking about it on Twitter. I really like how Grayson James is progressing. I like, uh, obviously I like his measurements. I like uh, just the, the way that he's playing right now. I think he's got a long way to go, but he is only a sophomore. And uh, obviously that, that FIU offensive line has a long way to go as well. Yeah, Joe, the big thing. And I think you kind of, you definitely addressed something that I, I thought was key. They didn't play scared. Right. And I know for people at home, listeners at home, you may think, all right, well, what does that mean? You know, in my mind, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Joe. That's kind of tangible when you have teams that are underdogs, heavy underdogs in games. You kind of see just by their approach, especially offensively, um, how they come out. If they're super conservative, you know, if they kind of just look timid. FIU came out there, looked like they belong. And that first drive, they moved the ball downfield. Unfortunately, it was the same culprit that really bit them in the UConn game. They just couldn't cash in in the red zone. That really hurt them. You know, if if they don't, they, they aren't able to come away with points on the first drive. Uh, they have a missed field goal, a couple missed field goals, or excuse me, one missed field goal uh, in the game. But, Joe, I mean, I, I, this was a nationally televised game, so I know you saw it. I'm not sure very many people had on their bingo card 0-0 after one, and UTSA didn't look like they were going to run away with this game. The only thing that, again, for people who cover FIU, people who watch this team on a week-in, week-out basis, the thing that you kind of knew, like, okay, UTSA eventually, and, and A, it, it, you don't even have to be someone who, who follows FIU, just someone who follows Conference USA. If you leave a talented team, and a, a, team like, a team that has Frank Harris that many chances, eventually they're going to capitalize. So I think that was kind of the sign heading into the second quarter once FIU couldn't put points on the board. And, you know, UTSA kept getting their chances that they were going to get things going. But, yeah, you know, the offensive line did struggle a bit. And part of that, again, is, you know, Julius Pierce got banged up in that game. You know, they're still playing young guys. So young slash inexperienced guys. Um, Ming Tan is a a very massive walk-on. But nevertheless, 
was a former walk-on. Ming is, uh, gosh, I want to say he's a sophomore, but a kid from American Heritage up in Plantation, 6'3", about 300 pounds, but still a walk-on. Um, so, you know, he's not a guy that they were expecting to play. Joe, I, I took a look at FIU's starting uh, two deep that they gave us that they gave to us on week one. There are eight players from the initial 22 offense and defense who either have missed time this year due to injuries or have left the program. So death is still an issue. That's going to play a factor. We'll see how they rebound and we talk about their preview against Charlotte. But speaking to the UTSA side of things again, you know, Frank Harris, Joe, a very quiet quiet 303 yards you know it's, it's not very often you're going to say a dude had a quiet 300 yard performance but just very efficient kind of that veteran leadership we had a chance to talk with uh, FIU linebacker Gaithan Bernadel who led the game if members are correct with 15 tackles and he talked about talking with Frank Harris post game and Joe I know you'll know this from our time talking with him at CUSA media days the guy's just a calm cool veteran presence and Gaithan said that you know you can tell how mature he is just even in that brief interaction they had post game so all in all um I, I guess if I were to flip it really quick again and, and you know maybe expand on the UTSA side a little bit and I'll toss it to you on on this any part of you disappointed in the 20 point win not saying like all right you know it, listen what Western Kentucky did to FIU that is not easy and it's not <laughs> I don't think that's the norm for FBS football we're still playing division one football here but any disappointment in your mind as far as the cream of the crop, you know, really kind of struggling in the, in the first quarter or so before getting things turned around and, uh, and getting that game out of, out of hand. I don't know about disappointment. Like I don't personally really have a dog in the fight. That being said, I think in the first half, there's, there's definitely a little, uh, a little sloppiness to, to how they played, but I know they were figuring some things out with, uh, some, some depth on that offensive line, as well as, you know, on that, uh, defensive front seven as well and you know Kavorian Barnes obviously isn't the main guy back there they were uh giving him a shot with uh, some injuries in that backfield as well um and then in the second half I made the joke that UTSA was favored by I believe 32 and a half heading into this game <laughs> or somewhere thereabouts and they uh, they fumbled on that uh, that one possession deep in uh, FIU territory just around the, the 10 minute mark in the fourth quarter. And people who bet the over on that game had to be losing their minds when that happened, because I know we were talking about it last week. I did not expect UTSA to cover based on the depth issues that we had talked about on their side of things. So I, I did think that was, that was a little interesting. And I, I personally felt a little justified in that, I guess. So I'm not disappointed. I know they were dealing with some issues there. So, um, but it was interesting that we got to see, you know, Eddie Lee Marburger get some uh, meaningful snaps at quarterback for UTSA as well. And then he played the whole game, but um, Shout outs to Dan Dishman got his first touchdown of his college career. And, you know, uh, uh, Cardenas on there, uh, Oscar Cardenas is, is getting up there in years. Um, so once he's gone, uh, seems like they're going to have a, a pretty decent pass catcher um, filling his role with Dan Dishman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talked about it in your lead in about some of the younger talent for UTSA. Kavarian Barnes, as you mentioned, was not the guy who was expected. Uh, Brendan Brady did play, did start, you know, but Kavarian Barnes was really the hot hand and uh, had obviously a career high. I want to say it was something like 128 yards. I don't have the stat sheet in front of me. And you talk about it, Dan Dishman. Uh, Joe, really quick, uh, Oscar Cardenas. I, I know we uh, we noted that Mike McIntyre said that uh, Cardenas might be bigger than anyone on the entire team. And obviously he was being, uh, you know, 
sarcastic when he said that uh, during the the midweek presser. But Oscar Cardenas is a big man. He is listed at 6'4", 285. Uh, he might mm-hmm. be a couple pounds heavier than that. You know what I mean? He's uh, He's got refrigerator Perry vibes for sure. <laughs> Real quick, was there an update on Donovan Manuel? I know he came out of this game with an injury. Uh, yeah, Donovan has, has had a couple games this year where he uh, where he's you know kind of gotten banged up and missed time. I know he didn't return, but as of now, there's not an update. Uh, today would typically be, or today is, I shouldn't say what typically today is, uh, FIU's weekly presser. I just won't be in attendance, um, but I will get the audio, so I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get an update on injuries. Mac has been a little bit, I don't want to say coy, but you know he's tried to keep those things a little bit close to the vest as of late, so. We shall see. Also with Tyrese Chambers, who did not play as well. So we'll have to see what his status is for this upcoming week. The expectation was for him to to miss this game and then likely come back the next week, as of like the information that we had this past week, right? For Tyrese? Per, per source, yes. Per source, gotcha. Okay. With that, then let's move on to UAB and their victory over Charlotte. Uh, 34-20 to 20 was the final at Protective Stadium there. Uh, Dwayne McBride, still phenomenal. Averaging 6.7 yards per carry, still top 10 in FBS. Uh, He had 29 carries for 137 yards and two touchdowns in this contest. And Charlotte actually led at the half of this game, but managed just one scoring drive in the second half to go along with three turnovers. You can't do that if you're trying to play a team as good as UAB. Um, But for the Blazers, only two penalties for them in this game, which is a step up for them. Unfortunately, they've been one of the more uh, penalized teams in Conference USA uh, this year and then going back to last year a little bit, too. So, um and I thought it was funny, too. We got to see Dylan Hopkins scamp around a little bit. He finished this game with uh, just over 100 yards and had that long touchdown at the end that ended up being kind of the uh, the death knell uh, for his team there. And now if you're looking at Charlotte's path to the uh, the postseason here, now that they're one and six, they need to win five games in a row to make a bowl game. So uh, certainly not an easy task and kind of adding to the uh, the pressure there for them. Joe, Charlotte got off to an incredible start to this game. They get the interception on the first play of the game, and then Elijah Spencer with the big 60-yard TD. I was was impressed with the fight that Charlotte had. I mean, especially defensively, Joe. We've talked about the the struggles of this Charlotte defense, you know, for the entire season. Not to say that it was a great defensive performance. I mean, Dwayne McBride still had – Oh, excuse me, 137 yards on the ground. I know Jermaine Brown Jr. is well, excuse me, Dylan Hopkins had over 100 yards. Jermaine Brown Jr. added another 40. So 279 yards on the ground, giving up not the greatest performance, but it's still, you know, take for what it's worth, a better performance than they really had been having over uh, the better part of this year. The issue was, you know, A, turnovers, you had two picks from Chris Reynolds, and that's kind of expected with a UAB defense that is very good. And just they weren't able to really build upon the early lead that they took. So in my mind, you know, I'm going to give Will Healy's club credit for the fight. They came out, you know, they didn't roll over. You know, they came out, they're still fighting hard. And again, I know those things are cliche, Joe, but they matter in my mind with a team that is one in six because, you know, things can get away from you in in a hurry. And, you know, they're not losing these games 50, 60 to, to 10 or something like that. That's just kind of indicative of a team that's like, all right, you know, we've kind of mailed it in clearly Healy's still able to get the guys motivated and up and going. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, in order for them to qualify for a bowl, they're going to have to win five straight. It's not to say that they can't play some streaky football. They did that during Will Healy's first year to qualify for a bowl game. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, 
Alex Highsmith, Ben DeLuca, Jeff Gemmel not walking through that door anytime soon. Those were all key contributors on the Charlotte defense the last time they did that. So uh, we've talked about, you know, how explosive they are offensively with Elijah Spencer, Grant DeBose, Vic Tucker. That's not going to be enough. Um, I mean, you see Vic Tucker, two grabs for three yards, Grant DeBose, three grabs for 24 yards. So uh, especially when you play a team, that has capable defenders as he does it's not going to be enough to you know really kind of string together some wins so we'll kind of evaluate and see what happens as they head into FIU week but all in all definitely a win that UAB needed and after a slow start they got things together played the brand of football that we've come to know and love from the Blazers and they walk away with the picker yeah and two quick notes on on this game for me before we move on to uh the 100 miles of hate game um, UAB really good at home. I think they're like 14 and five at home in, in the last uh, 19 games, something like that. I mean, no matter like what kind of atmosphere your team has, like that's impressive, no matter how, uh, no matter how you look at it. And then with Charlotte, I think there's one thing that, that sticks out to me, even though Charlotte is not playing well at all right now. Um it seems, and for me, and I'm sure this is of little solace to like the regular Charlotte listeners and the fan base as you're staring down, you know, a, a one and six record. Uh, Healy clearly hasn't lost the locker room. And I mean, if, if it was evident he had, then I think this would be a different conversation, but clearly still fighting for every inch. And um, the way that they played in the first half of that game, um, it's a step up. And like, w- no one expected them to actually beat a UAB team, that, especially one that's, uh, got the run game going as well as they did. So it's a good thing that they had it as much fight as they did in this game. But ultimately, you're going to need more to to get back in the win column and, you know, start uh, easing people's anxiety about where this program is right now, given their record. Yeah. And I mean, listen, I, I think, you know, right now, one in six, we can, you know, how this thing goes, Joe, we've had, uh, unfortunately, we've had our, our fair share of, you know, coaching, status situations over the five years we've done this podcast together so you know no need Mm -hmm. to belabor it right now we can get into that a little bit later on but um definitely will be some things to to evaluate i think the main thing in my mind uh charlotte one and six uh where is that program in relation to when will healy took it over and kind of what are the trends as far as going forward but again we'll have plenty of time to get into those things as uh the season closes here sounds like a plan and then in murfreesboro western kentucky 35 Middle Tennessee, 17, 600th win in program history and the seventh win against Middle Tennessee in eight tries for WKU. I had a note about Malachi Corley in here. I believe in the last two games, he's had like 21 catches for uh, a little under 250. Uh, Let me check his numbers real quick, but he's been fantastic. And I believe he caught, I know in this game against Middle Tennessee, uh, 10 catches on 12 targets. So uh, he's been so reliable and I love the kind of red zone target he's becoming. He is not afraid to run through people on those slant routes in there. And we saw him get a touchdown on, on such a route in this game, similar to what he did in, uh, in that first game against Austin P but you know, not, uh, not all sunshine and rainbows for, uh, for Western Kentucky's offense in this game, six total turnovers in this game between the two teams, but four were by the Hilltoppers. So it's a wonder they were able to win by almost three touchdowns with that number. And uh quick note for MTSU here, Frank Pizant did get hurt in this game. Haven't seen an update on him just yet. I assume we'll get one of those um, early in the week here, but that's not great for MTSU. 
And Blue Raider fans definitely feeling the frustration after that loss. In my mind, it's interesting that you start, or I shouldn't say started, but you kind of ended there with Frank Pizan. Because in my mind, listen, we can talk about some of the success that Middle Tennessee has had upsetting Miami. You know, a lot of that was due to really big plays downfield by Chase Cunningham in the past game. But that's just not a recipe for success. I mean, it's a recipe. It's a it's a it's a luxury. It's a nice thing when they can have it. That's not to say that Chase isn't a good quarterback or that they don't have capable receivers. But in my mind, Joe, we all know that for Middle Tennessee to have consistent success. Reaching to the choir. Said it a million times when we had Coach Stock on. We talked about it. it. looked like it was going in the right direction. Now, not so much. It has to start with the run game, and especially against a team like Western Kentucky that you're trying to keep off the field. 32 of 49, 278 for Austin Reed. Is, is it weird to say, Joe, that that's a pedestrian day <laughs> for the Western Kentucky offense? When you compare it to Bailey Zappi, everything looks pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, the, the third to afford nine for 278. Uh, again, in air quotes, pedestrian, but they're able to get. And this is another thing that I think it, don't be fooled by Western's passing numbers. They are a sum of all parts rushing team. You, you might not get a thousand yard rusher. You might not get, you know, a hundred yard day consistently, but look at the totals, 36 carries for a buck 65 and two scores that to flip it back to middle Tennessee is, is kind of what they need. They don't necessarily have to have a guy who's going to be Itavis Mathers from five, six years ago and run for 1500 yards, but they need to get a consistent ground game going joe and i've covered western kentucky a few times in person over the, over the past two years but whether it's then or whether it is then or watching them uh, uh on tv that's the thing in my mind that finishes games for them you know the pass game certainly jumps out and and puts up a lot of points on the board but they've always been able to get i should say always but when they've had success they've been able to get key runs and key moments those third and threes, third and fours, second and shorts, those, those, you know, short yardage conversion situations. They've been able to do that in my mind. That, that is the best brand of Western Kentucky football. So we will have to see, you know, in terms of middle Tennessee now three and four, oh, and three in the conference, you got to think maybe their CUSA title hopes are, are, you know, on thin ice. Uh, Not really. I mean, again, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Anything's possible in CUSA, but I can't see them reeling off enough wins and, you know, the top of the conference kind of selling off a bit. But in order for them to kind of get things going to get the three more wins they need to get into bowl contention, they're going to have to get the run game going. But 100 miles of hate, the uh, rivalry goes to Western Kentucky. Again, as it has seven of the last eight times. And yeah, you mentioned Kai Robichaud, um, or the running game in general, but and obviously Kai Robichaud has been a big part of that for Western Kentucky in this game, eight carries for 78 yards, you know, obviously not a bell cow back and you're not really going to have one in this kind of offense, but certainly comes through when he needs to, when you look at his body of work, uh, this, this, uh, this season rather, um, and and to your point, always good for those short yarded situations, it seems. And, you know, hasn't turned it only turned it into the three touchdowns. But um, it's always comforting to know when you have an offense that throws, you know, 40 to 50 times a game consistently that you at least have a running back you can turn to in those short yarded situations. And frankly, it seems like to your point, the teams that have been really good in this kind of Western Kentucky, Brian Brom, Tyson Helton type system, they've had those guys, you know, they had those in, in 15, 16. And um, I feel bad because I'm blanking on those guys' names right now because it's early, but 
Yeah, you're exactly right. They've always had a consistent running back who can, you know, get yards after contact and convert on those short yard situations when they really need him to. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, you go back and you take a look, you know, whether it's guys like Anthony Wales, DeAndre Furby. Yes, thank you. 2015, there you go. I'm always here on the spot to kind of help you out. Or I shouldn't say always, but I try my best to. <laughs> whether it's guys like those, you know, and, and I think Anthony Wells had, had a year. We had some like 20 something touchdowns. Uh, one of your members mm-hmm. heard me correct. So, yeah. Always had, you know, uh, a strong, at least a a formidable rushing attack. And, you know, I think, again, to bring it all the way back to this offense, I think that's key. You know, you can you can play pitch and catch all you want. It's not to say that uh, that wouldn't be a formula for success. I mean, we saw how many yards they threw for last year. But very quietly, they rushed for, I, I want to say, over – 12, 1300 yards last year as well. So I'm, I'm seeing now <laughs> the <laughs> avalanche of Twitter notifications I'm getting from your tweet about the seasons now. So I'll have to look <laughs> through, I'll have to look through those off air. Um, <laughs> I just looked over and it was like, you have 17 Twitter notifications. I'm like, Oh God, what, what, what did I do? Like, I think everybody has that moment where you have a lot of Twitter notifications and, and it's like, what are people? Ma- yeah, yeah. I'm wondering what are people mad at me about, but <laughs> okay. It's, it's just, it's just a conversation about how you don't know seasons. <laughs> really quick, Joe, before we transition, I also should have led with this, the pod with led with this on the podcast. Okay. Uh, I did get some feedback in terms of our conversation last week about, you know, uh, whether or not uh, it, it's a, a couple's thing that, you know, you don't check the great Samantha Londrigan's Instagram anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it was, it was mostly on a, it was mostly on your side, mostly on your side. So I will concede that one to you because it looks like you're going to lose this one. So I want to state it for the record on air. The majority of people do not uh, religiously they, they, check they, their wife's Instagram. They uh, Listen, it wasn't a consistently check their wife's Instagram, but they align with you. Put it to you that way. Fair enough. All right, for this next bit, we're going to talk about North Texas's 47-27 to victory over Louisiana Tech. And to do that, we're going to get a little help from Mr. Brett Vito. He is the North Texas beat writer for the Denton Record Chronicle. And, of course, the 2021 and 2018 Class A Texas Sports Writer of the Year. And you can find him on Twitter just at Brett Vito. Brett, thanks so much for coming back on, and it's good to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, of course. And, you know, we were talking a little bit off air about, uh, you know, traveling throughout the COSA and, and CFB landscape. I know you've gotten to uh, get around a little bit. Um, any travels that stick out to you so far this year? Well, I don't know. I think uh, I've been to a lot of the mid-major places over the years and probably, you know, more venues than most people just because of I've been in it for a long time. But, you know, I, know I hadn't been to UNLV before. That was a, That was an interesting trip just because, you know, they play in an NFL stadium. And, you know, Las Vegas is always kind of a neat destination. So that was a little bit of an unusual deal because you don't get to go uh, cover a college game a lot in a huge venue like that, an NFL type place. So that was a little different. I thought that was probably one of the more, you know, interesting trips that have, that kind of goes outside the normal realm of the places we typically go. Yeah. I mean, that seems like it'd be a cool place to visit for a game. Um Swinging it back to your uh, your trip to Ruston here in this one for North Texas, Katie Davis played probably his best game of the year with 19 total tackles, earned a CUSA Defensive Player of the Week award. Uh, what do you think of his performance in this one? Oh, uh, you know, Katie's so solid. He's just a uh, he's just a terrific player. Uh, North Texas is real fortunate they uh, talked him out of the transfer portal and they're coming back for one more year for that extra 
you know, COVID bonus year. And, you know, I think he's really taken advantage of, uh, you know, the opportunity to really solidify his, his um, place in North Texas history. And that, that game against Louisiana tech, he was just terrific. You know, he, uh, you know, they had him down in the game book here for 19 tackles. I think, so they either, they had him down for 19. They either at the end of the day credited him with 18 or 19, but he was just all over the field was credited for a half tackle with law for loss. You know, he didn't have a, you know, a bunch of sacks or, or, uh, you know, fumble recoveries or anything like that, any huge game changing plays, but he was just so all over the place and was such a big part of them being able to pull out that game. And he's just a terrific player all the way around. He absolutely is. I know he was a lot of uh, folks' preseason pick for CUSA Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Switching to the offensive side of the ball in this one, uh, Mean Green put up a school record 475 yards on the ground between Ayoadei, Oscar Attaway, Isaiah Johnson, Kalen Horton, and and more. A lot of ball carriers on this team. Um, So I guess what has made this rushing attack so lethal so far in CUSA here? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to last year. I mean, they they averaged, I think it was 282 yards per game and during that five-game winning streak. They just at the end of towards the end of last year, they just decided, hey, this is what we're good at. This is what our roster says we should be good at. And we're going to lean on our offensive line and our running backs. And if you look at what North Texas roster looks like, I mean, those guys have played an absolute ton of football up front. You know, Manasseh most came back for his for, uh, you know, COVID fifth year, he started 55 straight games, uh, which is a school record. Um, they, ha- I'm trying to look for, I'm looking down at the notes here and they have, I think the, that offensive line combined, you know, they have all those starters back and they've made, yeah, here it is. It was 139 starts between the batch of them. there going in the last week. So, you know, you tag on a few more so that, between the, the the five guys that they've got up front, they've made, you know, over 140 career starts between them. Um, you know, it's just a really good group. And then they've got, you know, a bunch of talented running backs behind them. A lot of them that have got a lot of experience. I mean, Oscar's been around for a few years. Iowa Day was a former walk-on that's turned into a terrific player for them. Uh, and then Kalen Horton was an interesting story because he they were looking for a kick returner after last season when they really didn't do much in terms of returning kicks. And they took a guy from a D2 school here in state that was a grad transfer is looking to move up. And, uh, you know, he's he took one back to the house against UNLV and they started working more into the offense because he's just such a dynamic guy with the with the ball in his hands in space. And, you know, so they've gotten him more involved and it's just kind of progressed from there. And last week was just a tremendous performance with them running the ball. They just made you know, a ton of really big plays in the running game. Absolutely. Horton, the, the transfer from Tarleton state that you mentioned can do a little bit of everything, you know, play defense. I believe a little bit back at, back at that level has moved over to offense uh, here in, in his last season at Tarleton state. Should we expect to see him be a bigger part of the plan for North Texas moving forward? I would think so. I think we saw pretty much what you're going to see with him last week. And, you know, they, they got him in right before the season started, got him eligible, got him back there returning kicks. And they, you know, he started making plays back there, you know, not only in practice, but in games. And they started to think, man, if we could just get this kid the ball a little bit in some kind of gadget trick type play situation, if we can get him in space, he's going to do something for us. And that's what they really did against Louisiana Tech, you know, they got him, uh, you know, in 
situation where they pitch it to him outside on some jet sweep kind of situations and things like that. And I think that's really where he's effective because he's not a big guy. You know, he's not a running back from a traditional uh, sense of the word. He's one of those guys that's you need to get him the ball in a situation where he can be effective. And I think they've kind of figured out how to do that by, you know, getting him on jet sweeps, getting him on the perimeter, maybe flipping the ball to him on short passes and and screens and situations where he can do something with. And I think we're just going to continue to see that through the remainder of this year and probably next year. He's going to be eligible again next year. So, you know, you'll probably see him return kicks and, and get into those kind of specialty situations where you can use a player like that. You mentioned also how many names have carried over from uh, this past year and just the amount of experience, et cetera, on this North Texas offense. Uh, what do you think is the biggest difference between UNT's offense this year versus last year? I think there's a couple of things. Um, if you looked at it at the beginning of last year, you know they were trying to figure out what they were doing at quarterback. They were trying to figure out a little bit about what their offensive identity what would be and that kind of thing. And they finally fi- found it late in the year to where – uh, they were going to run the ball behind that, like we were talking about, behind that big old offensive line and, and a couple of the talented running backs that they had. And I think the big difference this year has been the growth of Austin Ani at quarterback because, because, you know, they really struggled at quarterback last year and they uh, made the decision in the offseason, you know, to put uh, Blesh in charge, uh, their offensive line coach, Mike Blesh, in charge of quarterbacks, which was kind of a weird move if you looked at it on paper. Yeah, because Blesh had been an offensive line coach his entire career, and all of a sudden he's going to be your quarterbacks coach. It seemed like a little bit of a a weird decision, but they decided they they pointed to all the other guys that were former offensive line coaches that took over quarterbacks uh, in their careers, and uh, it just seemed to have worked out. You know, I don't think he's you know, he's not coaching people on how to throw the football, which is the point he made. It's, you know, it's about making the right reads and checking in the right plays and stuff like that. And, you know, now Austin is throwing for 241 yards a game and he's got 17 touchdowns, with eight interceptions. Well, you know, he's playing at a level that really makes a big difference for them. He's not completing a high, a super high percentage of his passes. He's throwing about 56%. But I think that a lot of that's the product of, what North Texas is doing offensively, they're running the ball and they're running a lot of play action stuff and taking a lot of shots down the field. You know, they're not dinking and dunking. So I think the the 56% completion percentage is a little played. And I think just kind of overshadows just the difference that he's made in terms of making their offense a little more balanced, a little more dynamic. And I think that's the big difference. This is the way Austin's playing a quarterback. Obviously Austin, um, He's had the journey he's had a little bit older than most college football players. And really, when you look at the majority of this North Texas team, it's a lot of guys with a lot of experience. And when you compare that to most of the other teams in the league, that's that's not really the case in in other uh, programs here. Um, so I guess what do you make of that experience when you compare it to a lot of the other teams in this league, considering where North Texas is in the title race right now? I think it makes a huge difference. I, and we, we talked a lot about Austin Ani here. And, and to me, I think a lot of what North Texas accomplished last year, you know, not just because of what he did on the field, but I think a lot of it you can attribute to the leadership that Ani and um, Katie Davis and a few of those older guys uh, provided when they were sitting at one and six, you know, you're sitting at one and six. I think a lot of the, a lot of teams would have, mailed it in or at least you know had some 
internal strife and things like that. But Ani showed up to every press conference all, you know, and answered all the questions about why they weren't winning. And he just kept telling us, you know, I think we're close to turning it around. And of course, you know, the meat, it, most media people, you know, me included, were like, yeah, okay, whatever. But he just kept saying it. And the more he said it, I just think he kind of convinced his teammates, along with Katie Davis and a few of these other guys, that they were close to turning it around. And then all of a sudden, they start, they won that game at Rice in overtime, and then it just started to roll the right way. And now all of a sudden, these guys have got a whole lot of confidence in what they're doing. And they've got a lot of the same voices in that in those rooms in the offense and defense that are that are kind of guiding the way with Austin and and KD and some of these other guys, you know, uh, Jair Shorters Jr. You know, some of these other guys have been around a while, and I think that that makes a big difference with uh, you know a team like that when they all start to believe and everything starts to start over right away. Fantastic with that, Eric. I'll pass the baton to you as we start to echo a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully that's not on a on my end. I'd kill my mic for, for a little bit because as it is in around two o'clock here in Florida, there's always someone doing some sort of landscaping. Didn't want that uh, going over the podcast here. Uh, so, Brett, I, I want to switch sides of the ball, go to defensive side of the ball, uh, make it short and sweet here. Um, given North Texas's defensive struggles over the past few years with obviously three three different defensive coordinators, Clinton Bowen, Phil Bennett, um, and uh, Troy Refford, if memory serves me correct, what's been the biggest difference um, in this year, and, and should I be a believer in that defense going forward? I think so. I mean, the thing with Phil is he's just got so many skins on the wall. I mean, there might not be a more – well, I mean, I'm sure there are, but there can't be that many guys that are out there that have got a many, as many skins on the wall as Phil Bennett does. I mean, he was at Kansas State when Kansas State was great. He was at, you know, he was at Texas A&M. He's been, you know, he was at Arizona State. You know, he's been all over the place and coached just a ton of defenses. And the guy just knows what he's doing. His experience level is through the roof. Um, the way he connects with his players is is you know, pretty remarkable. You know, they just all believe in him and would run through the wall for him. And he was able to take a defense that was absolutely terrible the previous year and um, and turn it around. And the thing that's really impressed me this year is you think about all the guys that North Texas lost after last season, right? That defense last year was pretty solid. They did a good job. They played a, they played a big role in North Texas going from one and six to getting into a bowl game. The thing that really makes you even more impressed about what coach Bennett has done is the guys that made that defense, what it was last year, Dion Noville graduated the Murphy twins transferred to UCLA and are playing really good for a power playing really well for our, for a power five team starting making, making big plays there. They're ranked among the best, you know, statistical defensive ends in the country. Well, you lose both of those guys. Kate, uh, Tyreek Davis was a linebacker for North Texas. It was a little undersized, but made a ton of plays for him. They lost him. They lost their safety, Mikhail Sanders, to graduation. So they just had a ton of guys walk out the door, and they were able to rebuild and rebuild not around a bunch of guys that are were blue-chip type players, even at the Conference USA level. I mean, they get Mason Richards, who was a good player at a D2 school in in Eastern New Mexico. And then all of a sudden that guy has three sacks last week. You know, they brought in a few other, uh, you know, transfers that weren't like top of the line type guys. Um, and they're playing great. You know, uh, they got Ridge Tejada from McNeese state, 
you know, largely because he played for uh, Phil Bennett's right-hand man, Jim Gush, at McNeese State. And all of a sudden, Rich Tejada, who's an undersized cornerback at 5'8", is tied for the national lead and passes defended. You know, they've just been able to find these guys that have been, they've been able to, you know, take guys that maybe weren't top-level players and add them to that defense and make up for the losses that they had. Cadron Johnson, defensive end, comes over from Division II Abilene Christian. All of a sudden, he's starting and playing well. So, you know, I just think there's a lot to be said for what Phil has managed to do with uh, what he has in terms of talent and how he's gone about it. A couple of guys who I feel like don't get mentioned, and, you know, I'll let you elaborate as far as how crucial they are on this defense, but in my mind, I think they're kind of pivotal pieces, especially – given North Texas secondary is Quinn, Quinn Whitlock and Deshaun Gaddy. What if you could talk about them a little bit? Well, you know, Gaddy's been around a while and uh, he's bounced from corner to safety and been back and forth. And uh, he's really, you know, he's, in the, he's the guy on the opposite of Ridge, opposite side of Ridge to hot is probably their best cornerback. And he's played pretty darn well, you know, and he's made a lot of plays for them. And then the other guy you mentioned is Quinn Whitlock. Who's another guy that changed positions. You know, he, he was a safety that's been around a while and he's uh, found his way into a, <clears throat> into a new spot in Bennett's defense, you know, cause he was looking for uh, somebody else to fill that, that spot. He, yeah. He moved over to the Eagle spot to replace Tyreek Davis. Just want to make sure I had that, the name of that spot. Right. But so he, he moved into that hybrid safety slash linebacker spot that Tyreek played last year. And he's been a real big find for them, made a, a lot of big plays in while playing in a new position. And, you know, that's been a real key to what North Texas has done defensively. So, yeah, I mean, that's another guy that uh, has moved into a different place and has kind of found his role under Bennett. Two more, Brett. We'll get you out of here. Going to take a look at the schedule down the stretch here. Okay, so the mean green are four and three. With, you know, you look, take a look at Conference USA, you got quite a few teams that are really kind of bunched in there and, you know, kind of looking to make a chance and looking to have a chance to break out of that uh, that pack and play for a conference title. I also have UTSA this week, head to Western Kentucky. Two games will probably uh, be very pivotal. FIU, UAB, and Rice. Um, not asking you to predict, you know, their record or how they'll finish, but just as you look at the rest of this schedule here, you know, uh, how do you kind of feel North Texas kind of, kind of matches up here going down the stretch again, UTSA, Western Kentucky, UAB, and a, and a rice team is performing pretty well, you know, considering all things considered um, going to be tough down the stretch here for North Texas. Yeah. I mean, the, the schedule does get more difficult as, as North Texas goes down the road here late in the season, because you got the teams that played in the conference USA title game um, in back-to-back weeks on the road. And neither of those places are particularly easy to play for different reasons, but you know, you got to go down to UTSA, which is going to have a ridiculously big crowd and it's, uh, you know, kind of a hostile environment. You know, that's that that's not going to be easy. And then you got to travel all the way across the country to Kentucky, you know, which is a tough trip. And then you're going to be playing in the cold, which North Texas never does particularly well. Uh, you know, so that's another that's going to be another tough game. And then you look at the end of the season, FIU ought to be a win. Uh, because FIU just struggled so much. And then you've got the two, you know, two maybe 50-50-ish kind of games against uh, UAB and and Rice. And it's not going to be easy to win at UAB either. So, um, you know, it does get tough down the stretch. Then when you start looking down the line and you think, okay, how does North Texas for sure get to a bowl game? I think you went, I think you got to win that FIU game, which they should. And then you got to, you know, pick another one to get to six. And then hopefully for, 
if you're looking at it from North Texas perspective, maybe you get two or three down the stretch. So I think the whole, the whole key here is, you know, what happens these next two weeks? Does North Texas manage to steal a game on the road at UTSA or Western Kentucky? And if they don't, can they regroup? And, you know, in that, that last three games, you know, go two and three or, you know, maybe even go three, you know, that'd be a bit of a stretch to, to win all three, but I think it's possible. So I think North Texas season, as you, as you look at it down the, down the way, it's all about stealing one and then maybe thinking about, can you get it together to go three, and zero down the, down the line in those last three games. And if they do that, I mean, if, if, if the, if everything aligned perfectly and they could steal one of these, these two games on the road, and then you go three, and zero down stretch, all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, five, you know, you get to eight wins or something like that by the end of the year. I mean, that would be a tremendous season for North Texas and would probably solidify uh, Latrell's, uh, you know, status with the program. So I think that's what they're hoping. Realistically, you know, I mean, maybe you're hoping you can get to six or seven. Last one for you, Brett. We'll get you out of here. And again, always appreciate you making the time to hop on with us. Guys like us who, you know, obviously cover teams, uh, one of the biggest things we care about is easy access getting in and out of cities. You know, I, I want to ask you with North Texas making the transition to the American, which one of these new uh, cities are you looking forward to visiting the most? Uh, going to run through them here. Of course, SMU's in your backyard, so we'll, we'll scratch that. But you got ECU, Memphis, South Florida, which of course is in Tampa, Temple in Philly, Tulane in New Orleans, and Tulsa. Um, which of those sound uh, most appealing to you? I think definitely going to Florida is, you know, the, the the optimal deal there, especially, you know, depending on the time of the year, you could get, get that trip in the middle of, uh, in the middle of winter, which is nice. I remember back in the day when we used to travel for basketball, which we don't do anymore because just nobody really cares about basketball in Texas to a large degree. Um, you know, the, the one trip I always kind of look forward to is that <clears throat> was the FIU, FAU basketball swing, you know, because you, you'd fly, you know, it was like a Thursday, Saturday deal. So you fly down on Thursday and then you fly back, uh, you know, on Sunday, you know, and if you could, if you could swing it, you could take a, a later flight back on Sunday and all of a sudden you got a five day swing in, in uh, Florida, which was like a mini vacation, which was pretty sweet. So I, you know, going down to South Florida sounds like it would be a pretty appealing trip and you know some uh nice time to go back down there again good old south florida where i call home always an appealing trip for those on the uh on the cusa and on the travel beat joes i'll let you close this one up you know you might have nice weather but at least we know when seasons start in other parts of the country um, now hang on i'm i'm brett we're gonna get you out here in 30 seconds i'm not gonna let joe just bury me on that it's an inside joke here so <laughs> i you know, after full disclosure, we're taping this podcast in two parts. We taped the earlier portion this morning. And uh, I, as a born and raised Floridian, Brett, I said to Joe that I, I know of all four seasons. I do not know when all four seasons start because as a Floridian, there is summer and then just not so much summer. And I went to grad school in Chicago and there's winter and not so much winter. Is that a fault? Is that a, who's in the right here, Joe? Settle this debate. Brett, settle this debate. I don't know. I've, I've, I used to live in Colorado where there was, uh, you know, that's where I grew up and there was, you know, there were four seasons there. And I think there's something to be said for having uh, the four, you know, the four seasons of fall, winter and stuff like that. I kind of miss that sometimes, but yeah, I don't know. That's the, I'm not sure about that. That's a, that's a good well, question. 
Well, it started because you were like, Eric, you were like, is it fall? And I just have this image of you walking around town, seeing all these jack-o'-lanterns and Halloween decorations. And you're like, is it spring? I can't tell. It's going to be 87 degrees out. So there's not quite many, you know, indicators of a season outside of summer, sir. You have Dunkin' Donuts, though, right? You have you have people saying how much they love pumpkin spice, spice whatever. Latte, yeah. yeah. That, well, that's the that's the part. That's the problem with living, living in a place like Florida full time or you know, or and that part of the country, or Texas, even really, because I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it gets, you know, we're in the middle of what would be, you know, Halloween weather back where I grew up, and it always tended to snow on Halloween. And you know, now I'm sitting here in shorts, looking outside, and it's you know, seventy, you know, seventy five degrees or sixty. But you know, it's bright and sunny. It looks like kind of summery weather out there, and we're almost a Halloween. So yeah, I kind of miss the whole having seasons thing too. So I, I get where he's coming from. <laughs> Brett, Joe and I will take this up again off here. <laughs> Appreciate you making the time to join us as always. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Have a good one. Thank yeah. you, Brett. All right, with that, let's move on to the Battle of the Owls, FAU and Rice, uh, 17 to 14. Uh, frankly, FAU avoids disaster by pulling this one out. So need to give the FAU defense a lot of credit. Three interceptions and held the Rice offense to just one third down conversion on eight attempts in this game. Um, Rice actually had three drives in the final 11 minutes of the fourth quarter, but came up empty each time. Um, they really had the opportunity or they really had every opportunity to win this game and just could not pull it out. So um, once again, I think you got to give the uh, FAU owl defense a lot of credit. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Nikosi Perry, solid day for him as well, turned in 100 rushing yards in addition to uh, a touchdown throwing the ball. A pretty good day for him there as well. Um, honestly, ugly win for FAU, but is there really such a thing as an ugly win in college football anymore? Sure as hell ain't one for FAU, because I'll tell you this much, it was a lot better than going two and five. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Exactly. Uh, J- Joe, really quick, and I should have sent this to you off here. Did you have a chance to see the breakdown of the game-winning TD pass done? Uh, phenomenal job done by, uh, in this case, 247's Kevin Fielder. Of course, Kevin does work for the American for us, but uh, in his you know main coverage, it is with uh, 247 Owls, 247 FAU football. Did you have a chance to see that by any chance? If not, I will explain it to you and send it to you while I am breaking it down. I refuse to read anything Kevin does that isn't for us. No, I'm kidding, obviously. <laughs> but uh, no, I did not see that particular thing. Okay, I'm going to send that to you as I am talking on the air. You can have a chance to turn off your mic and uh, listen to it. But Joe, Kevin does a phenomenal job breaking down essentially the game-winning TD pass from Nikosi Perry uh, that went to Jamal Edrine. So as we've talked about on this podcast, FAU, and I know I've talked about it with Kevin as well, I've always been curious about FAU's offensive identity, right? Like when they need a play, when, when it's those third and mediums, what are they going to be? Are, are they going to run or are they going to pass? You know, again, you, you, you have a new offensive coordinator coming in from Middle Tennessee and the offensive schemes tend to, uh, you know, versus whether it's Brent Dearman versus Willie Taggart, especially with the Gulf Coast offense, they tend to run counter each other. So Kevin Joe does a great job. And for the audience, I'll kind of explain it. He talks about how Rice came out in a quarters coverage. Uh, for those who don't know what a quarters coverage is, essentially the four DBs have, as simply put, uh, a quarter of the field. Quarters are cover four. Uh, the both are the same thing. <laughs> essentially, what the play that FAU runs 
it, it, it has the receivers not at a at, at a stack, but a uh, excuse me, not at a bunch, but a stack um, on each side. If memory serves me correct, on, on the field, so you got two receivers each side, right? You got the boundary receivers. Each of the boundary receivers are running basic, basically go routes. They're they're not exactly like straight straight go routes, but they're kind of streaks, right? So they kind of run you toward the sideline and then up the end zone. And then you have both of your slot guys running outs. And essentially what, and again, please, uh, maybe we'll, we'll link this in, uh, in, in, the, um, in the pod description because Kevin does a phenomenal job breaking it down. What you're looking to do in that coverage is get the safeties to account for something in the slot so that you have those one-on-one opportunities with the boundary receivers. That's exactly what happened on the play. Nikosi Perry goes through his, his first two progressions. That safety, I want to say it was Gabe Taylor. Uh, it was the strong safety. Um, it counts for that slot, that, that slot out. Cause so his first Joe, and, and I'm sure you probably are seeing the tweet as I'm talking about it. He, he, he's playing, you know, in, in his death, but that first step he has to take can't be backwards, right. To kind of account for, uh, um, the, the go route, the double, the try double on that go. That first step is kind of a, a shallow step up to account for whatever's coming at him in the slot, right. That allows Jamal Adreen to get up the field one-on-one pitch and catch TD. Great play call, great play design. But if it wasn't for that, we're easily talking about a two and five team here. So I am not necessarily looking to, and I'm as you mentioned, uh, ugly win. A win is a win. But when we opened this year, would we have thought that Rice and FAU would be competing in a three three point game, especially on FAU's home turf? I don't think so. Um, the fourteen of twenty six for a buck twenty six in the TD really really a a a fight for nikosi perry because i want to say the td passer through to jamal adreen was something like 35 40 yards um looking or excuse me it was shorter than that it was about 18 yards but still nevertheless so if rice jumps out to the the 14-0 lead the long pass uh from brad ross and re-breaks a couple tackles from tj mcmahon takes it to the house and ari broussard it's a three-yard td if they're able to hang on to the football they leave south florida with a victory um, so, but again, it's those opportunities that left FAU chances to get back in the game, give credit to Willie Taggart's team, but a, I'd recommend looking up that play design because those are the type of things that I, I think we need to see more of from FAU as they try to get back on track here and now three and four, but two and one in conference, but also this was an encouraging part of your FAU fan is the fact that they got the win. It's not necessarily the fact that, you know. They're in a dogfight with Rice, a team that if they'd gotten that, it's a tough pill to swallow for Owls fans because they would have been four and two and two and one in conference. Yeah, absolutely. And ditto to everything you said about uh, Kevin's analysis there. And we'll put that on the on the site for folks to check that out. But a great play call there. Um, no, Kevin Fielder, uh, something of a Brett Deerman fanboy, um, but uh, <laughs> it's, it comes through for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. For FAU, I think you just got to be happy that you came through with a uh, a victory at a <laughs> at an important time. I mean, again, to your point, we would be having a much much different conversation now had they not pulled this game out. But um, fortunately for them, um, they're in a position where 
it's it's not going to be easy, but they can still make a bowl game. They're three and four. Um, they got a very winnable game against uh, UTEP, at least for them, uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks here. And then they they also have FIU left on the schedule, and they have a, an MTSU team on there as well. So can definitely still make a bowl game. Just going to have to uh, you know do everything in their power to have a better game than they did against Rice, um, and not leave it up to their defense um, the way that they did. But good performance by them for sure, though. The defense, anyway. One thing we didn't get into too much about UAB and Charlotte, um, there was a little bit of a coin flip debacle at the beginning. Uh, Charlotte, I believe they called tails. Coin came up heads, and the referee said Charlotte won the toss. And it, it took a minute for another official to, to correct him there. So a little bit of a brain fart by the officiating crew and certainly not the first time that's happened in football. Actually, you know, you kind of go back to that classic uh, clip between the lines and Steelers and I think 98. Um, and that actually ended up like changing the way that uh, the NFL, you know, um, you know, it changed their protocol for coin flips. <laughs> Um, as well. Um, and, you know, cr- I guess credit to, you know, the other official there for catching the mistake and, and getting it fixed before um, there was a, a real debacle to deal with. But, um, you know, everybody has their moments. As you mentioned, the protocol was actually changed following that game is one of the earliest Thanksgiving memories that I have, Joe. Uh, Jerome Bettis. Joe, I will never forget to look on Jerome Bettis's face. <laughs> and he's like, yo, it- did he say that's it called the other like Jerome Bettis is just he's flabbergasted at, 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 at what happened. Also, you know, the era of the big running back, like not big as in 230, but like the bus 270. Oh, man. With the with the rubber uh, elbow pads. You remember those, Joe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the Mike Allstott, Jerome Bettis is, oh man, definitely miss those. Nevertheless, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, I, I, it was something that I didn't know, but I actually just watched the broadcast back. Uh, it wasn't mentioned on the stadium broadcast, at least in the early going. So um, I found out about it from Twitter as I, I talked about that. I was rewatching that broadcast, but definitely just a kind of a, a funny zany note. And we'll have to see <laughs> if conference USA then changes their protocol, which essentially is you call it, you, you say, is it heads or tails? And then you flip the coin as opposed to call it in the air because, you know, trying to flip a coin and listen to what someone calls is just a little too tough. <laughs> just a little too tough. <laughs> um, yeah. So we'll see if that changes. If not, it'll probably happen again in another 10 years and we'll have the exact same <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Um, and then as you put it, the other thing we want to talk about was mine and Dan Morrison's pearl clutching, uh, by, uh, there was an incident at Fresno state where, um, they obviously, if you haven't been following Fresno state, they're not very good this year. And that is a divergence from the expectations that they had, um, for the start of the year, they were supposed to be pretty good. And I believe they are one and five or two and four. Um, but one of their coaches that was in the, up in the box lost his mind because they were playing poorly and actually punched out a window, um, in anger or frustration when they were losing to, uh, San Jose state, uh, this past week. And the glass actually, uh, fell down onto the crowd and, uh, cut several people, including a little kid, um, who had to be taken to the hospital. So and then Dan's tweet was, I'm actually getting pretty sick of coaches in the booth losing their minds like this. You're an adult, grow up, awful that this guy injured a young girl. Um, 
I don't know. I guess my whole thing is if you're the adult in the room, don't do things that endanger little kids. <laughs> I mean, I think I think there's a difference between getting angry and, you know, yelling at the, you know, yelling at your players, you know, and the way that that one experience that you described and putting people in danger. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, w- I probably wouldn't have really this probably wouldn't have caught my eye had a little kid not got hurt. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it was pearl clutching. I mean, I think you can. I don't know. I mean, uh, we've all we've all been there. I don't really fault coaches for getting angry by their team's performance. And also, I don't know how much you know about oh, the insane amount of caffeine those guys consume before every game. But somebody's going to have a freak out one way or another. Um, but at the end of the day, don't don't punch glass. You know what I mean? Like I've been to enough metal shows to know that ends poorly. All right, Joe. So you kind of brought it around there for me. And again, we hadn't talked about this prior to taping so i didn't know exactly what your rationale was because if you're you know playing the the reactionary game and saying hey really i'm i'm upset that an, a little girl got hurt sure i but it, that's fair but i feel like we know that the coach was not intending to hurt a young girl my issue and part of this is just me taking out my irrational hate for dan morrison out on you but not for any other reason that <laughs> dan morrison is a red sox fan so that that aside I just found, you know, the reaction to Ken Dorsey a couple of weeks ago for those who didn't see it, the Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator who was, you know, slamming his iPad and, you know, threw a, a fit uh, that looked reminiscent of, you know, maybe a, a seven or eight year old child who did not get a toy in their Happy Meal um, after, you know, the Buffalo Bills lost the game. It, listen, if you want to see what goes on behind the scenes of a football game, Specifically, in this case, coaches. I'm not saying all coaches act this way, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of coaches that act this way. <laughs> you know, coaches yell and cuss, as like the example I gave a couple weeks ago, and they get pissed off in the booth. Um, and I am going to take the position of defending coaches here. When you spend the amount of hours that you do, like doing this, and especially at, you know, the G5 level, it's not not every coach is making millions of dollars uh, and you put the amount of time into it. Yeah, you're going to get emotionally invested in something that for the average person is just a relief. It is just entertainment. It is just an escape from their nine to five, from their Monday through Friday. So whether it's the criticism of Ken Dorsey or in this case, you know, I joke about hating Dan Morrison, but I am serious. And I say Dan says, you know, getting pretty sick of, of coaches in the booth, losing their minds. You got to act like an adult, grow up. That's that's a very cut and dry, uh, and maybe you know I have to hop on the American podcast and, and take this up with Dan as well. It's a very cut and dry, black and white um, take for something that's very gray. And also, we've all gotten angry at work. I mean, I, I think regulars of this podcast can kind of get this from our personalities. You know, Joe and I aren't the most like high strung guys in the world. I mean, we we can. <laughs> I think if our buttons are pushed, we can get high strung, um, but. We might not necessarily take work that personally, but when you spend 60, 70 hours at work and your job essentially amounts to a three and a half to four hour outcome, all right, like things happen. So I I, I, I don't want to tell Dan to grow up, but I think that's just a, for anyone who wants to do the pearl clutching when it comes to football, 
or sports in general, you can't have it both ways. You either want to know how the sausage is made and you want to you, you want the behind the scenes look or you want a sanitized version. That's fine. You just got to pick one. Yeah, all good points. I think also it doesn't help that when your job all comes down to that three to four hour period and then it also entirely relies on the execution of 18 to 22 year olds. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that that doesn't help the stress levels either. That being said, I, I stand by my original point of like, you have to be cognizant of your surroundings. Yell, scream, be angry. And frankly, there are scenarios where if you're going to break stuff, break stuff, but do thing, but do that in a situation where you were not putting other people in danger. That was not the scenario. We, we, listen, that is a great point. I mean, Limp Biscuit, Circle Woodstock 99. When they broke stuff, other people it's just put one of those days. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> there, have you seen these places that are popping up now? Though I think they're called like outrage rooms or something like that, where you can just go in and like pay like an hourly fee, and they you, they put you in like you know like a protective like suit, and they give you like a baseball bat, and you just break you just break stuff. I had never heard of that until you just mentioned it. I googled outrage room, and then it said outrage room near me. Um, I got to sit down and process that before I, I formulate an opinion. Cause my, again, Joe, as someone who's naturally like a very calm, patient person, mm-hmm. I tend to look at people who, <laughs> who need that type of a type of outlet, like rather curiously, but I don't want to judge either. So let me sit on that and maybe we'll come back to outrage rooms next week. Maybe, maybe, maybe Joe, maybe, you know, for next year's Conference USA, uh, Underdog Dynasty Conference USA uh, excursion in which we blow through the entire budget on an Airbnb, maybe part <laughs> of that will be uh, us going to an outrage room. <laughs> part of that budget went to banana pudding as well. But. Yes, yes, <laughs> went to banana pudding and a lot of beer circa Emily Van Busker. And me. <laughs> yeah, true. I, I felt the judgmental eyes from the rest of the room. I was like, is Joe drinking another beer? And <laughs> you, you had a lot of beer. It's to the point to the point where Mike McIntyre saw us the night before and said, I saw all that beer <laughs> on the living room. Oh, uh, when we were recording. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, uh, no, the night. Remember, we uh, we saw um, Coach the night before uh, when we got there. And when he came up to the table, he's like, because we'd gotten oh, at the restaurant. Started, yeah. 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 We you guys had started indulging. You like I just went from we to you guys. I started indulging in, in beer the night before. So, yes, it's going to say, don't don't put that. Don't put that. You guys stuff on me. When Emily and I got there, you and Kevin were a couple drinks deep. Also, in my head, Florida is just one big outrage room. Anyway, fear, fear, <laughs> and for and and because Joe did not hear my joke there, I want to make sure it is established that was a joke. Kevin Fielder is old enough to drink, and I would never feed you know a, a minor alcohol. <laughs> Fair enough. All uh, right, before before we end up you know going off the rails again, get, get, get to next week. Okay, all right. Kicking the week eight slate off again with a Friday night game, uh, eight o'clock Eastern on CBS Sports Network, Western Kentucky and UAB. A little surprise that Western Kentucky is favored by two and a half heading into this game. Uh, both teams have four wins 
um, prior to the start of this one. And it's tough for me because it's two very different styles, right? You have UAB who who plays that ground and pound so well and just controls the clock. And that offensive line is so dominant. And then obviously Western Kentucky, you know, slings the ball around. You have uh, Austin Reed who, you know, hasn't played particularly well from behind um, yet this year. So it's going to be really interesting to see who starts this game on the right foot. Um, so ironically, it's all going to come down to that coin flip, I think, and see who who has the ball first and who can establish momentum first. Uh, I'm going to pick UAB uh, for the quote unquote upset. Um, but we have two teams here who play well at home and Western Kentucky is the home team. So that makes things a little more interesting. But ultimately, I think UAB um that experience is going to serve them well. And I think that offensive line is going to do what they do against a, a, a Western Kentucky defensive front seven that has played well. But in my opinion, I think they're just a little bit below this UAB offensive line, but we'll see. Joe, I am really torn on this game. I want to pick Western Kentucky. I, I feel like they have some things going here, especially up front. Quantavius Leslie, Rusty Stats, and others at offensive line really coming together. They're going to need solid play against a UAB defense that has a sum of all parts, is very, very good. Obviously, Western Kentucky will have to protect the football. Grayson Cash and others. Mac McWilliams having a really good year. So definitely want to shout out Mac McWilliams, uh, Grayson Cash, uh, th- that whole secondary there. But with that being said, what I think this game is going to come down to is UAB's ability to run the football. And I just think that Western Kentucky's defensive line, while a group that is formidable and, and has its moments at times, I, I don't necessarily know that they're going to be able to you know do enough to slow the UAB offensive line and the rushing game. That is going to keep Western Kentucky off of the field. That is going to allow the UAB offense to make enough plays. If they cannot, if they if they can protect the football and not turn the football over, they'll win. Um, and I am predicting that that is uh, what will happen. So I'm going with UAB as well. This one really could go either way, if we're being honest, so, which is probably why the line is, is so low. But yeah, it's going to be a fascinating one in Bowling Green for sure on Friday night. And then on Saturday to kick things off at 3 Eastern on ESPN Plus, Louisiana Tech host Rice. Rice minus three heading into this one. Um, this one, you know, if Rice had ended up beating FAU, I would have no problem picking Rice. But Louisiana Tech has done well when they've started the game well, right? Like if Parker McNeil comes out and has the kind of day that he had um, a couple of weeks ago where he scored on, you know, the first four drives against UTEP, then this might be a different story because it, 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 Rice, like UAB, plays in those scenarios where they need to establish momentum and they need to control the clock. Whereas Louisiana tech, because that passing game has that kind of talent. um, I think they can afford to do more with less time. If you go back and look at, um, you know, some of those, some of those games, they lost the time of possession battle, but still uh, put up a lot of points. So um, I'm going to pick rice, but like that Western Kentucky UAB game, Rice needs to come out and establish momentum early. I am taking Rice as well. I think they're going to rebound. They played a really good game against FAU, just couldn't hang on to the football. I think this is a Rice team that's really finding their footing, Joe. They're finding themselves. They're finding kind of what their identity is, what they want to do. And importantly, guys like Brad Rosner and you know Luke McCaffrey and others are stepping up and giving them enough offense, uh, enough uh, of, of an uh, enough weapons offensively, excuse me, 
um, to be able to get things done. So I'm going to take the Owls. And while, yes, Parker McNeil and that Louisiana Tech offense have done some things, I just don't think that, uh, you know, right now, again, that's a team that's still really finding itself. Even though it'd be nice to watch their progression as they get more comfortable in that Sunny Cumbie offense, uh, I just don't think they have enough right now. So give me Rice. Then at 3.30 on ESPN3, Charlotte hosting FAU. Charlotte minus 14 and a half in this one. I'm surprised that they're giving them a two-touchdown cushion here. Um, I personally think Charlotte's going to win. I think the way that they performed last week gives me a little bit of hope for uh, where that program's heading. Um, obviously, you've still got the passing attack for what it is. I think they're they're finally back at a point where everybody who needs to be a key player in that aspect of their game is healthy. Um, so I'm going to take Charlotte here and – Again, we've talked about kind of the the inexperience and the depth issues on FIU's offensive line. I think Charlotte's front seven, based on kind of the rebound that they had last week, I think they're going to be able to give uh, that FIU unit some more problems here. So I think Charlotte's going to win this game. Joe, this may surprise you. Um, very much not a homer pick. I was really tempted to take FIU in this game. Here is why. Something that I noted on Twitter. I know you saw it as well. Grayson James, for whatever stock you put in the pro football focus uh, ratings, rankings, reviews, whatever you want to call them, was rated, uh, was assigned a higher PFF ranking for the game uh, against against UTSA opposed uh, in, in relation to Frank Harris. I know people look at the stats and say that's insane. I, I don't necessarily think he had a higher grade, but what I think you can say is this. All things considered, when you look at the pieces that Frank Harris has in relation to Grayson James, it, it's not exactly apples and apples trying to compare those two guys. Grayson is really growing in the uh, in the offense. And listen, the FIU quarterback situation, unfortunately, whether you're Hayden Carlson or, or Gunnar Holmberg, the other two guys, you can't really grade them. It's very much inconclusive because they didn't get enough snaps and they're playing, you know, as we've talked about behind an offensive line that's still growing. Grayson is the only one that you can make any sort of real, you know, assessment because he's gotten the majority of the snaps. I say all that as to say this Charlotte defense ain't good. And I think there will be opportunities, especially if they get Tyrese Chambers back. Uh, they have some opportunities with Flex Joseph is really growing to one of the better all purpose players in all the conference USA. But right now, as I mentioned, they're just too banged up. You know, I mean, with the guys they have who have left the team, the injuries that they are battling, uh, I, I think that is going to be the major downfall. Not necessarily that, that this game won't be closer than whatever. The, I think it's a 14 and a half point spread. This game will be closer than that. But I'm going to take Charlotte. Then in the great state of Texas, we have UTSA hosting North Texas. 330 Eastern on stadium there. Um, that's going to be a really important game as far as the CUSA championship is concerned. UTSA minus 10 roadrunners, of course, five and two need just one more win to get back to bowl eligibility. North Texas at four and three. Um, these two teams do not like each other. At least these two fan bases don't. So this is going to be fascinating to see. Um, I think North, I think UTSA rather is a little more balanced. Obviously North Texas's rushing attack is, is going to be, really really solid i think they have a lot of weapons that utsa is going to have to be prepared for and that uh that defense in particular is going to have to be um they're going to have to know what they're dealing with so hopefully they they have some pretty extensive film sessions coming into this one um for at least for their sake anyway uh you know if north texas does win 
that is going to be a really good uh, sign for, for where they are as a program to beat UTSA two years in a row. Um, that being said, my gut says UTSA just because I think they have more uh, big play capability. North Texas definitely has big play capability as well. We saw you know those long touchdowns um, this past weekend to kind of put Louisiana Tech away, but I think you can't really compare Louisiana Tech's defense to UTSA's right now. Joe, you hit the nail on the head for me. I would feel comfortable picking North Texas if they had a defensive performance like that against, you know, a bit more of a, and not to say that Louisiana Tech's offense isn't formidable, but it's young and they're still evolving. They're a handful of, you know, have a season into a new offense. UTSA is a team that has been in that scheme and in that system for a long time. This would be a huge win for North Texas and a win that would really solidify them as for real if they're able to get it. I don't think they're going to be able to run the football as well as they did last week. I think they'll be able to run it well, but not as well as they were able to last week. And quite frankly, I just don't think they're going to be able to stop the UTSA offense. They have not had enough consistent defensive performances to at least give me enough reason to pick them in the onset. So give me the birds at home. And then we have UTEP hosting FAU on ESPN Plus at 4 p.m. Eastern to finish things up. FAU minus four heading into this one. Um, this is going to be my upset pick for the week. I think UTEP's going to beat FAU in the Sun Bowl there. Based on what we saw last week, I think FAU's defense played really well, but I think you also have to kind of take into account how the offense played. And there were definitely some, some issues there for most of the game, at least, uh, you know, uh, not the, not the go ahead touchdown uh, as we talked about, but what I'm expecting in this one is for uh, UTEP's offense to kind of learn from what they did wrong against Louisiana tech, uh, limit the turnovers, uh, hopefully get the run game going a little more. And then hopefully, hopefully, once they are able to establish that run game, that's going to open up uh, some downfield opportunities on uh, on that Gavin Hardison deep ball like we've talked about. So I, that's what I think they should do, kind of embrace that side of their game. And then defense, you know, they just need to be able to limit the big plays and uh, <laughs> not give uh, Nikosi Perry too many chances. Because as we've seen, if you give him enough chances, he'll get it done. You are thinking on courting the Gavin Hardison deep ball. What I am thinking about is FAU's consistency or lack thereof this year. And Joe, maybe I am a little bit recency biased on the fact that I had to make that trip out to El Paso. While granted, the Owls will not be taking two flights like I did to get to El Paso. That is a long way from South Florida. Um, I, I just think, it, it, again, for a team that's struggling with consistency to kind of get back up and have to make that trip and play over there on a, on mountain time, I, I don't, if UTEP wins and I am picking UTEP to win, I don't think it's going to be as much of Gavin Harrison's play. Cause I, I think the strongest part of FAU's defense is their secondary. I think it's going to be, if they're going to be able to shut down their defense is going to be able to shut down uh, the things that FAU and Brent Dimmer are looking to do offensively. So I think it'll be a close one. Very much a pick in my mind, but I am taking UTEP. I'm into it. I think that game is going to be entertaining and there's definitely something to that, uh, that long travel day, like you said. Um, all right. So that's going to wrap up this slate for uh, the conference USA podcast on underdogdynasty.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's just at underdog dynasty for content from the site. And then I am at J O E H I O underscore Eric is at Eric C Henry underscore. And uh, as we kind of move through this second half of the season, we're going to have a lot more fun content for for you all and uh, bring on some more guests. Thanks again to Brett Vito from the Denton Record Chronicle for uh, coming on to talk North Texas with us.
and uh, hopefully going to bring some more on and uh, definitely tell us whether or not you remember what the seasons are. I can't believe that's something we talked about on this podcast, but uh, Joe, there you go. Stop um, slandering me. I know what the seasons are when they start. I will not let you close the podcast <laughs> unless you get that correctly. I know it's fall, winter, spring, and autumn. I do not know when they start. I know the four seasons. <laughs> okay. All right. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.